You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Zeitgeist podcast here at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Uh, I'm uh, standing in today for AICGS President Jeff Rathke, and I am Eric Langebacher, a senior fellow and the director of the Society, Culture, and Politics program. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories in the United States and Germany. Uh, which is actually our kickoff event for a new project that we have here at AICGS uh, entitled The Importance of the Transatlantic Partnership in Times of Global Crises, Opportunity and Imperative for Cooperation. And this has been very generously funded by the Transatlantic Program of the Federal Republic of Germany uh, with funds through the European Recovery Program of the Federal Ministry for Economics and Energy. And I'm very pleased to briefly introduce Uh, our two uh, 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 speakers today. Uh, we have Letitia Bodhi, who's the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Communication, Culture and Technology Master's Program at Georgetown University. Uh, she researches the intersection of communication, technology, attitudes and behavior, emphasizing the role of communication and information technologies uh, in the acquisition use, effects and implications of both information and misinformation. And we also have Daniel Köhler, uh, who studied comparative religion, political science, and economics at Princeton University and the Free University of Berlin, uh, holding a PhD in political science. Uh, his, his work focuses on terrorism, radicalism, and de-radicalism. And he's actually the co-founder of the first peer-reviewed open access journal on de-radicalization, which he has created with the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies called GERDS in 2014. He actually in 2016 was appointed to be the first court expert on de-radicalization in the United States in the District Court of Minneapolis. Uh, he's also a member of the editorial board of the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. And in 2019, he was appointed as a research fellow um, at the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at the American University here in Washington, DC. So we have two just terrific people who will be speaking with us today. So I think it's pretty clear that conspiracy theories and political extremism have grown, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, pandemic began in many countries. But this has been particularly the case in the United States and Germany. We've seen false information flourishing, leading the United Nations to even deem this a so-called infodemic. So the first question I'd like to pose to Um, our experts today, is what do you think is driving this increase in the United States and in Germany? Uh, Letitia, uh, I'd like to begin with you. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I think this is such a great idea and uh, it's such a pleasure to be in such great company. Um, so I think uh, you couldn't have started with a bigger question. Um, this is, there's so much going on in here. So I'm going to pick it apart a little bit to try to make sense of it kind of piece by piece. Um, so the first thing is just talking about what we mean by conspiracy theories and misinformation. And this is, you know, part of a range of terms, conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, propaganda that get tossed around kind of under an umbrella group of, you know, just information that we don't like. 
um, for various normative reasons, um, but there are important distinctions between them. So uh, most of my research is on misinformation, which is just false information according to the best evidence that we have available. Um, but uh, conspiracy theories are slight, a slightly different version of that. So conspiracy theories are specifically the idea that there is power that is being exercised by a small group of people kind of behind our backs that we don't, un, we don't get to be kind of privy to. Um, and I will say that in general, we find that it is much harder to deal with conspiracy theories than it is to deal with misinformation um, because people like, any information you give to debunk something uh, can be fit into a conspiracy theory. Well, that's what they want you to think. Uh, you know, the, the, the people behind the curtain gave you that information and are trying to make you believe it. Um, so conspiracy theories are really difficult to deal with. Misinformation is also difficult to deal with, but not quite as, as difficult. The other thing I wanna say about that is we don't know for sure that misinformation or conspiracy theories are actually increasing. Um, so I think it certainly seems that way to people. Um, it feels like a big problem. If you ask people, is misinformation a problem for society? They say yes, kind of across the board, right? So Pew Research Center has asked these questions and well over half of people say that this is a big problem and they put it above things like, you know, crime and, you know, other big problems. Um, so it's definitely something people are worried about, but it's something that's really hard to measure. So because the nature of misinformation changes over time, we would have to be trying to measure every possible piece of misinformation at every point in time in order to actually know for sure whether it's increasing or not. So that's just a, a kind of side note on that, on that side of things. The other distinction I wanna make is about political extremism. Um, and people mean different things when they talk about political extremism. Everything from um, kind of what we think of, especially in the United States, as polarization, um, which is often uh, partisan in nature, which is, is documented to be increased over the past couple of decades. Um, so my favorite way that they measure this is actually something called affective polarization. And one of the ways they uh, ask people about this is, uh, would you be okay if your son or daughter married someone from the opposing party? Um, and that measure has gone down over time. So if you're a Democrat, you really don't want your, your child to marry a Republican. That freaks you out right now. And that didn't used to be the case. That didn't used to be a salient identity in the way that it is now. The other aspect of extremism is um, kind of what we think of as violent extremism or, or uh, more serious extremism that can potentially uh, result in violence. I was actually at a, an event yesterday with the Department of Homeland Security and they call this DVEs, uh, domestic violent extremists. And this is something that they're really worried about and they're really um, trying to put more resources to uh, mitigate this, this potential threat. And we also think that this aspect of political extremism has increased over time. So if you look at the way Southern Poverty Law Center keeps track of hate groups over time, um, they saw a 30% increase in the number of hate groups that they have documented from 2016 to 2019. Um, so it does seem like both of those aspects are increasing. Now, how does political extreme, I, I, I could spend the entire podcast just talking about this question. I'm going to stop talking at some point, but there's so much interesting stuff that you, you packed into this question. So how does political extremism relate to misinformation or conspiracy theories? I think there are two ways. First of all, from a polarization kind of perspective, if we're thinking about extremism that way, the more 
you are tied to an identity, the more you are willing to accept maybe a little bit of fudging of the truth in order to bolster that identity. So we have documented evidence that people are more likely to accept misinformation that is uh, amenable to their side. And they're also more likely to share that misinformation. Um, and it's kind of an expressive idea, right? It's more I care about people knowing my identity and knowing that I care about my team as opposed to actually caring about the truth of the information. The other way that it works is the opposite. So misinformation can also essentially produce political extremism. The more you have bad information, the more that can uh, lead you down a path towards political extremism. Um, I think I'll stop there uh, so that I don't take up the entire podcast and I'm sure we'll get into some other ideas later. Great, thanks so much. Um, Daniel, would you also like to respond to the question? Gosh, I mean, I, I don't even know uh, what I can add to that. I mean, uh, always the, the most important points ever made. I think that um, maybe I could add different perspectives to that when it comes to how um, how certain conspiracy movements or theories or developments have been utilized by existing political extremists, and maybe also a different German perspective on that. Um, I think you're absolutely right uh, that that different forms of misinformation and conspiracy beliefs or theories have always been around and arguably have not really, in terms of their scope and their number, not really changed that much. We just tend to see them more. Uh, they are more highlighted. Um, and I think that we kind of, maybe it helps to think about this in, in the way that we, we, we might differentiate between people who are not normally you know identifying as extremists or as radicalists or as any people who are anti-government anti-society but who come in contact with conspiracy beliefs and conspiracy theories and arguably most people at least hold some form of misinformation without even knowing it because no one of us is able to double check any information that we are exposed to we just tend to believe certain authorities, be it journalists or researchers or the government or any or friends even. Um, and we, we ascribe certain authorities, certain people based on certain characteristics. And if these characteristics change away from the actual factual reality and the actual authority of a certain matters, um, this opens up the door to taking over beliefs into something that might evolve into conspiracy beliefs. And on the other side, we have established political extremist environments, neo-Nazis, jihadis, left-wing extremists from all different kinds, kinds and sorts, who we know that uh, their violent extremist environments and ideologies, all of them include certain aspects of conspiracy theories. And no violent extremist environment is free of conspiracy beliefs and conspiracy mentalities, albeit to different degrees and different forms and scopes, but this is part of being an extremist, being part of an extremist environment is also to some degree subscribed to these conspiracy mentalities. Um, now, what we, what we saw in Germany here is right at the beginning of the pandemic, when large scale and, and massive, like, like with high pressure um, international conspiracy movements like QAnon and others were coming into Germany, connecting to the pandemic situation. Um, so in Germany, they're more or less moved away from the Trump situation and the election and directly connected to the pandemic. Uh, immediately, we saw mostly violent neo-Nazis and sovereign citizens 
preying on, on this and they're immediately seizing the situation and starting to create subcultural elements like music, like clothing um, and mobilization for these newcomers, quote unquote. So people who are, you know, frustrated, who are, you know, afraid, who have existential threat, fears, they, they are afraid, they don't know what's happening. And uh, I think that we know that existential threat and, and fear is a main driver of belief in conspiracy theories. Um, so they are, they're taking in these people, they're providing them with a group, a network, an environment that understands them and that channels their insecurities, their frustration, their fears against the establishment, against the society immediately. And thereby also, you know, infusing this conspiracy movement, this forming conspiracy movement with their additional political ideas of anti-Semitism, of, of violence, of anti-democracy. Um, and this, this is something that we have seen that from the beginning, this conspiracy movement, this anti-vax movement, anti-antivirus uh, anti movement was politically very, very, uh, you know, very diverse. We had people from the far left to the far right center. They were all coming together in, in this shared uh, belief that the government is hiding something, that the virus doesn't exist, that the vaccination won't work. So politically, they were very diverse. And by now, after one and a half years into this, the whole, the whole movement has shifted drastically to the far right because they were continuously infused with the extreme and far right ideologies and, and, and political ideas. Now, when I, when I talk about far right or extreme right, this might be another interesting perspective. Germany has, I think, quite a different tradition of framing these terms. We have something what we call a militant democracy or defensive democracy, which is the direct result of our experience with the Nazi regime. Uh, we, we learned that under the umbrella of a democracy, it's, it's simply too dangerous to allow any kind of thought and any kind of political attitudes, even if they are directed directly against a democracy. So we learned that tolerance for people who want to abolish democracy is essentially this is the red line that should not be crossed. So in our understanding, there's a differentiation between radicalism, having radical thoughts, which is protected by our constitution. You can be convinced neo-Nazi, you can be a jihadist. But the threshold is if you proactively do something to abolish the core principles of the democratic society, but not just by violence, but also by, you know, standing at your weekends to advertise for voting for a neo-Nazi party or anything like that. And this, this is where, where you become an extremist in our perspective. And this is what establishes the legal ground for the intelligence service to monitor you, to list you, your and your organization and intelligence reports, etc. It's not a crime yet. It's not illegal per se, but you can be monitored and surveilled and the intelligence community can do something uh, against you. And then later on, obviously, it leads to certain crimes like showing Nazi symbols in public, et cetera, which is illegal in Germany. So I think that we need to understand, based on everything that we've heard so far, there are people who come into contact with conspiracy beliefs and who are mobilized by that. Their fears are stoked, their anger is stoked against someone they don't even know. They have a, a, like an abstract picture of an enemy, the government or a Jewish community or whoever is behind that conspiracy. And we have existing extremist environments who strategically prey on those individuals and try to shift them and move them into a more organized, more violent and, and criminal 
um, position, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, that actually flows into uh, the next couple of questions that I wanted to pose to you, which maybe I'll bundle together under the rubric of what is to be done, right? So are there any effective means to combat misinformation or conspiracy theories? And then related to that, what are the most effective actors to um, address or to use these means and to try to push back on, on these developments? Uh, Leticia? Yeah, so I, I guess this is the good news part, um, is that there are effective strategies for dealing with these issues. Um, the, the bad news, I guess, is that none of them are 100% effective. Um, so what my colleague and I advocate for um, is what we call the Swiss cheese model of uh, misinformation defense, which is modeled after the Swiss cheese model of COVID defense, which you may have heard about from a public health perspective, which is like, you don't just need masks, you also need vaccines and you also need social distancing. And any one of those is not perfect at preventing COVID transmission, but if you put them all together, then it makes it more likely that, that we can get it under control. Same thing for misinformation. So none of the approaches that we've tried so far, at least, are 100% effective. But if we put multiple approaches together, we're more likely to have success in, in kind of a holistic way. So what are some of those things? Um, my research focuses on what we call peer correction or observational correction. So the idea that other people can correct one another when they see misinformation on social media or in other contexts, but social media is kind of the most salient one. Um, and this, this is effective. Um, it's particularly effective for the people watching the interaction. So you may not convert a, you know, a, a strong believer that's posting misinformation, but lots of people on social media get to watch you correct that person. Um, and they will be affected. Their opinions and their willingness to accept or reject misinformation will be affected. Um, but everything, so that's my, my kind of contribution to this area, uh, my research. Um, but um, other aspects of this are things like uh, platform-based content moderation, uh, media literacy campaigns are a huge aspect of this, right? Just getting people to slow down, uh, stop and think, um, and um, figure out how to evaluate information in a more uh, systematic way. Um, content labeling, which can also happen at the platform level, uh, what's called inoculation, which is kind of part of media literacy. So preparing people that they are going to be exposed to either particular false narratives or particular uh, types of arguments. Um, so things like cherry picking or um, straw man arguments or things like that, uh, preparing them for that can make them more resistant to it, can build that resilience. Um, and then kind of uh, also at the platform level, deplatforming uh, people that are egregious offenders that are doing this repeatedly and are clearly doing it intentionally um, can be removed from the platform. And, and that has been shown to be um, fairly effective uh, at reducing the exposure of people to misinformation through those offenders. It also has been shown to uh, kind of increase the toxicity of those people when they go to other platforms, but they have smaller audiences when they go to other platforms. So it's, it's probably a, a worthy trade-off. And then um, the other thing is just promotion of good information. Um, so I think uh, we can't just cede this space to misinformation. We need to be actively putting out good information and promoting that using trusted messengers and trusted messengers are going to be different for different communities. So being really sensitive to that fact that certain people are not going to trust the CDC. And if the CDC is the only messenger that is sending out the good, reliable information, that may not be effective for them. 
Um, so thinking about who else we can, we can, I don't want to use the word use because that sounds, uh, sounds nefarious, but uh, who else we can uh, employ, um, uh, recruit to, to send some of these messages to uh, help people get the good information so that they're not just uh, seeing the bad information. Great, really helpful. Uh, Daniel? I, I think these these uh, evidence-based tools are brilliant and it's, it's a brilliant collection of, of uh, recommendations. Um, I, I would add to that the perspective from the PVCV community or the Prevention of Encountering Violent Extremism community and research that I think we need to see different phases of the quote-unquote radicalization process from what we would say primary to secondary to tertiary prevention. And I think Sadly, most of these tools that are evidence-based that we have just heard about uh, focus on the primary prevention aspect. So before people are hard believers and are committed uh, conspiracy believers. So when we still have the opportunity to reach people, maybe in, in school, maybe in high school, university, and, and through other channels that we can create, we can inoculate them, we can create resilience, we can inform them. All very good and very helpful and very, very important, uh, especially media literacy. Um, but what we're dealing now is with a massive movement of people who have radicalized to a degree of ready to use violence, even that those primary prevention tools, these, these basically inoculation resilience creating tools, they won't uh, you know, actually do anything with those individuals, I think. And you might have heard about the case just, um, just about two months ago in Germany, there was a killing, a murder in Ida Oberstein. Uh, someone shot um, shot a cashier at, at a gas station because he was asked to wear his mask. And he was so radicalized in the conspiracy movement, in the anti-vax movement, that he actually took up a gun, came back and killed, killed the, the guy. Um, and I think that from a de-radicalization or counter-extremism perspective, this is extremely difficult because... Um, those, we, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, Leticia, um, I, I don't think that we have so many evidence-based tools that are directed at people who are deep into conspiracy, conspiracy beliefs. We know a lot about de-radicalizing people from violent extremism in general or violence and in general crime and organized crime, et cetera, gang-related crime. But these beliefs are so um, fundamental, con fundamentally connected to their identity that it's really, really difficult to get them out, and they have they have detached themselves so much from the mainstream society, and they have a huge environment on Telegram. They have channels that have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people and members, um, and these channels are abundant. So they don't feel isolated. They feel part of a huge international community, um, and it's hard to reach that community from from anywhere. They they are deplatformed from many mainstream social media sites. They don't actually. They, they, they have no interaction anymore with, with non-conspirational uh, society members. So it's, re it's, it's getting really difficult. Uh, the Germans have, the German intelligence has introduced an own new category of extremism called anti-constitutional delegitimization of the state so that they have something to frame it even to start to understand the extremist nature of it. By def, by, but most of them are not hardcore neo-Nazis, even though neo-Nazis you know, are you know, traveling along with them, but they are equally violent, they're equally anti-Semitic, they're equally anti-government extremists. And I think we need to approach the issue 
little bit more from that angle, uh, seeing it more um, as a combination of, of public health, individual mental health, but also a, a clear-cut radicalization process that is directed against another community, against the government, um, and it's fiercely violent. It leads directly to violence and crime. So in the end, we need programs. We have in Germany, we have dozens and hundreds of CVE and PVE programs, but only very few counseling centers that are specifically dealing with conspiracy beliefs. And it's usually a case-by-case -case basis. Um, usually they work through trusted individuals, family members, but I have seen, I've worked over 10 years now in the CVE, PVE field, uh, and I've rarely seen the, the pace of people violently cutting off contact to their family members, to their closest friends, because they don't share their belief in, in mask mandates or in vaccinations. It's, it's getting so quickly, so radical, um, that it's difficult to actually find the point where you can intervene still through the family members or through, through friends or through the community. So I think it will be a very, very tough and hard and resource intensive case by case mentoring with those individuals if they actually if they actually see a need to change for themselves. And we we start to see some people who left conspiracy movements, um, these larger ones and, and more public ones, but most of them are quite happy in it. And that's the shocking part. They they feel part of a very close-knit uh, community that validates their beliefs. And it's a trans transnational movement. So from a PV or CV perspective, I gotta say, um, I'm a little more, you know, uh, depressed than what, what we can do about this. And, and I don't think that research has a lot of evidence-based tools right now at our disposal for that. All right, well, um, these have been such robust uh, discussions. I think we only have time for one more question. And Daniel, you kind of just touched on uh, what I'd really like to get your both of your um, perspectives on, which is precisely this international or transnational dimension to the misinformation and the conspiracy theories. And so I'm wondering if you think that there's anything that can be done jointly, um, specifically maybe by the US and German governments or by civil societal actors in those two countries or whether it needs to be um, even larger at the UN at uh, some kind of multilateral level, but what can be done jointly um, to, uh, to tackle this transnational uh, uh, dynamic? Uh, Leticia? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, another all of the above kind of answer. Um, I think there is space for government collaboration. Um, certainly the, I guess the broad thing I want to say is most of the misinformation and conspiracy theories that we see, we see in multiple contexts. So they don't tend to care about borders, right? There's not a lot of US specific conspiracy theories. Um, they, you see the same kinds of misinformation in Africa and in Germany and in the US and in Latin America um, on the same topics. To some extent, that's a result of disinformation campaigns that are actively pushing that information in different places. Um, but to some extent, it's just what resonates with people more broadly, right? Um, so you sell misinformation that you think people will buy and uh, that misinformation tends to be uh, parallel across borders. Um, so what that means is that there is space for um, I think the biggest thing is sharing of information, whether that happens at the civil society level or the government level. Here are the false narratives that we're seeing. 
here's what we are trying to counter right now. Here's what we're anticipating. Um, so one thing that I think uh, governments could have done a lot better through the pandemic, for instance, is we knew before the vaccines came out, before we made the vaccines, that there would be misinformation. And we had a pretty good sense of what some of that misinformation was going to look like. Um, so if you compare misinformation about the COVID vaccines to misinformation about vaccines in general, it's not that different, right? We're worried about what they're made of. We're worried about the kind of trials that are used and how safe they are and how much evidence that we have about them, right? Um, and that's true across the board. So you can do a better job anticipating those things the more you're communicating about what those narratives look like across borders. So that can happen at the government level, certainly. And I think it is to some extent, um, but it can also happen um, through you know, nonprofit organizations. So there's a, an organization of journalistic fact checkers called the International Fact Checking Network. They do a lot of information sharing um, where they say, you know, we're seeing this thing and people are claiming it's from Poland. Can you, you know, can someone from Poland like help us investigate this? Like what's going on? Um, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that. But I think if, no matter who's doing it, I think it comes down to information sharing and communication. Great, Daniel. I absolutely agree to that. I, I think we need to, to start seeing uh, misinformation or conspiracy campaigns as a form of, of national threat. Um, and we haven't even touched upon the issue of coordinated campaigns as a form of hybrid warfare from other state agents that have recognized the potential to highly influence, uh, destabilize and influence a, a situation, a government, an election, a population. And in fact, looking at the past election in the United States, looking at the at this pandemic situation right now, um, misinformation campaigns or conspiracy campaigns can easily become now and, and today a, a matter of existential threat, not just for a nation, but obviously for humanity. If, 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 if they succeed in making humanity believe that science and research and medicine is part of a conspiracy, it, it becomes a matter of existential crisis for humanity. So I think that uh, misinformation campaigns or conspiracy campaigns should, we should have an early warning system that where the intelligence communities or the law enforcement communities or um, any, any kind of national security board uh, actually monitors it. And, and, you know, as you said, Leticia, provides warnings to all the member states, to all their partners that campaigns in this kind of direction are will, will coming up. Uh, and then we can start preparing counter campaigns and counter information before that. I think most Western politicians have massively, massively underestimated the threat from these conspiracy uh, campaigns that we saw. And even despite the fact that they saw the danger of that, of misinformation campaigns in the US election, for example, and they keep seeing it all over and over again. And it's just, it's it's not just elections, it's not just pandemic, it's, it's no, it's a climate change, it's a climate crisis, it's all different issues where so, somehow um, misinformation is used to further polarize and destabilize. So I think we need this early warning system and that obviously should be based on more evidence uh, director research. So collaborative research between Germany and US where I think as, as you correctly stated, these issues are quite pre uh, pressing. I think outside the US, the German QAnon community is the largest non-English speaking QAnon community that, that we see worldwide. And there's their close links between German and US cons conspiracy theorists and movements 
uh, both violent and nonviolent. So I would welcome more uh, actually collaborative research and really to see how they connect, where something started, where it ended, how it's transported back and forth, how these narratives change, um, and what kind of measures and, and methods helped or, or you know, made it worse in the end. All right, well, I see that we have uh, basically come to a, uh, an end today. So I wanna thank our two speakers, uh, Leticia Boda from Georgetown University um, and Daniel Köhler for taking the time to speak with us uh, in this episode of the Zeitgeist. And I would ask our listeners to stay tuned for uh, the next installment of our podcast. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.